Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Dr. Rob Lieber is a trauma surgeon at Western University in London, Ontario. We spoke with Dr. Lieber about his work on trauma simulation and particularly on his work on data-driven competitive motivation strategies. Finally, Dr. Lieber shared with us the tips that he wished he had had when he started out in practice. Can you uh, tell our audience where you grew up and where you did your training? Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, about as sort of a suburban London, Ontario of a guy as you get, born and raised here, um, moved back to my, my same neighborhood and raised my kids here now. Uh, I escaped briefly to uh, Kingston to play football and to uh, do undergrad and uh, did my residency in both general surgery and critical care here. And then had a wonderful couple of years away doing trauma surgery and acute care surgery um, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, which was a really uh, a cool formative couple of years for me before, like I said, coming back on staff here at Western. Remind me again, what uh, position did you play in football and, uh, you, and you played at the college level, so you must have been fantastic. I, and the fantastic is, is a stretch. I was a running back and a linebacker all through, you know, my younger years. And I played linebacker at Queens. I was exceptionally average. My brother won the Vanier Cup for Queens. That was kind of a, that had been my, my most fun day in the sport of was watching him win the Vanier Cup with my, my old team at, at uh, Queens. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a great sport to me. And I, I coach all my kids. I, my, my oldest son plays now. And uh, it's, uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful sort of piece of my life. But uh, fantastic is a stretch, I'd say. Uh, average to slightly above. Wow. What an experience though for yourself and then watching your brother. That must've been amazing. Um, tell us about what your, well, first of all, what got you interested in trauma surgery? And then what was the experience like at, at training at such a hallowed institution like Johns Hopkins? Yeah. I mean, um, the answer to the first part uh, is really easy. Um, and this will date me in a major way, but there was a television program called ER when I was a kid on NBC and, uh, the character Peter Benson was kind of my hero. And I think we're all like that as kids, you grow up watching, I don't know, LeBron James or James Bond, or, you know, somebody else who seems to you to be a superhero. And to me, I looked at this guy and said, Oh my gosh, this guy, Whenever these other doctors are in trouble, they call him. He shows up and does something daring and the person survives and it looks incredible. I want to be like that guy. And so really from about, you know, eighth grade on, um, that was what I wanted to, to be and to do was to, to be like this guy I saw on TV. Uh, so that's what got me interested in it, honestly. And then um, the second part of your question was about... Um, life and training in Baltimore. And I think, you know, I really remember very clearly my, our chief of surgery when I was a med student, Ward Davies, telling me that his fellowship years were the best years of his life. And I thought, that's a weird, I, that's, I didn't, that surprised me. What do you mean? And I, I totally get what he meant after being in Baltimore. It's um, a couple of years where you're at the peak of your kind of training. You've just finished the, the hardest part of your training. You're Royal College certified. And then you go to this place where all you do is the best cases. All you see is the hardest stuff, the biggest gunshot wounds, and you're tackling it in some ways for the first time as you, as an independent staff person. And it's an incredible way to sort of, um, yeah, learn, learn the trade and have great wins and great losses and learn how to bounce back from the bad days and not get too high off the good days. Um, the people I met there, I mean, I could name, a ton who, uh, you know, people in the trauma world would know Dave Efron was our chief, you know, Elliot Hout the, was our, my, my fellowship director. So just incredible people there. And even the cross town, you know, cross pollination, getting to do a lot of training and, and time or shock trauma, getting to just be around, you know, um, you know, Dr. Scalia and those people was like, it, it was a really cool city to train in and to work in. Um, it was, uh, it, it was, it was awesome. So I really, I always tell my trainees fellowship is, is something it's, it's the cherry on top of the cake of, uh, of training. And we should all look forward to, uh, to that opportunity. And some of those names that you mentioned are just legends in the, in the trauma world. And I still enjoy your banter with uh, Elliot Hout on Twitter. 
that certainly <laughs> gets gets me laughing every time I see that. So uh, I, I can only imagine what, what it must have been like to actually go and train with them. I think, you know, looking at your uh, your research and all the work that you've done, sound, it seems like, you know, your interests in simulation and trauma started fairly early on. And, and you did some work, I think, uh, as a fellow while you were in, in uh, Baltimore, particularly around the multidisciplinary a difficult airway course. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, tell us a little bit about that uh, work that you did on the MDAC. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Simulation and using high fidelity simulation to train has been something I've been really interested in for like forever, it feels like. And again, uh, broken record, like it, it actually takes me back to, to football. You know, a lot of what we would do in football and, in, and as you guys know, in sport is go out as a team and simulate something bad happening. Oh, wow. Here's a really good play. The other team runs. Let's let's do it. We'll record it and then sit there in the locker room and break down the tape. And I remember my coach, Pat Tracy, saying like, you know, Leaper, why are you on the numbers? I need you outside. I need you here, not there. And then, okay, well, the next time we run that play, we're going to do a better job of it, right? And so simulation is that chance to simulate problems. And in my situation, I always record by sims and break them down. And that's what we have been doing, whether it's trauma, difficult airways, um, crisis in the operating room. It's kind of the way um, I skin that onion. This particular uh, project that uh, we did in Baltimore, I was lucky as a fellow to be able to plug in you know, and be part of a, a really cool program that was already kind of in existence. And it was the, as you mentioned, the, the multidisciplinary difficult air rate team. It's actually called the DART team, the difficult air response team. And it's great because it, it arose naturally out of a need. They had uh, one sentinel case that opened everyone's eyes to how bad it could be if if you know airway experts aren't around. And the hospital stepped up and started to fund this program that allowed, you know, um, uh, the trauma surgeon, uh, an ENT surgeon, anesthesia, emergency medicine to all be available and on call to respond immediately like to a trauma anywhere in the hospital to an airway emergency. So that program was sort of before I got there. But what I got to add, which is great, was kind of an analysis of what our educational piece had done to add to that program. What we ran there was this big four times a year educational simulation course, a full day where all those different providers from, like I mentioned, anesthesia, emergency medicine, surgery, ENT, and even some of our, our, um, our CRNAs or our nurse anesthetists and, um, and other folks would get together and, and train together. It was just like what the military does with, with you know, getting away for training a couple times a year, just what, what sports teams do to get together and practice once a day or once a week, whatever. And it, we drilled and drilled and drilled and did these, these simulations that really seemed to improve team functioning when, you know, when it counted when people worked together for um, these events. So it was, uh, it was a big deal. It was really cool. I just want to pause for a second because I, I think people don't always appreciate what an institution like Johns Hopkins does from sort of a research perspective and what kind of infrastructure they have in place to actually make it possible for people to do high quality, high volume research. Can you just tell us for a second, like what kind of, when you plugged into a research program like Johns Hopkins, what, what did that sort of look like? What kind of support or resources did you have to do uh, work at Johns Hopkins? Yeah, there's a lot that's amazing about these big American centers and um, you know, Johns Hopkins in particular, I think the things that blew me away um, on the research side were just, yeah, the amount of people funding time and energy that was available for that kind of work, you know, um, from, you know, their affiliation with the School of Public Health, their C-Source program, um, the number of, you know, grad students who were just keen to jump in and help you with things. And, um, and just even at the level of the hospital to say things like, hey, we think this makes care safer, it could and you know they had, we did analysis with them. Some of the group that I got to work with did analysis looking at medical legal settlements and said we can save potentially a million bucks per bad event if we have a difficult area team. What do you think about funding this? And they went, oh yeah, that'd be great. So just the idea that because it's an institution that is in some ways you know research focused and has an, an outcome focused, um, they're willing to invest and do things 
that unfortunately, when you look at the, other, the, the sort of the other model that we work with in a, in a publicly funded system where it says, hey, the government gives you X dollars, try not to spend it all. It's just, there's no, they don't have that same desire that drives innovate and to, and to proliferate their research sort of infrastructure. So it really is like some ways in Canada, you feel like you're working against the stream, whereas in John Hopkins, you hop on and the, and the river is just flowing in the right direction. You, you just go for the ride. It was really, it was a really impressive sort of um, uh, place to work. Absolutely. And I think a lot of American centers are, are like that. Yeah, that's a really interesting comment, Rob. You know, I think you're exactly right. Each of the places I was in in the U.S. was was very similar, and you know, they the Americans have a really, I think, important way of linking funding and cost, um, so money in and money out to the patient as the patient moves along their healthcare voyage. And you don't get these Canadian silos where the ORA budget um, has to give and the floor budget has to take, and there's there's conflict there. Um, it's it, it really is superior, you know. Linked to that, then in your in your early career, you've been very very uh, uh, enthusiastic and prolific on the research side, as as Amir said, simulation as as well as other uh, entities as well. That certainly will will link the podcast too. But um, what are some of those those um, sentiments and those structural elements that you've been able to bring back from Hopkins into London and, and try and uh, sort of nudge maybe London in, in a little bit left or a little bit right, uh, despite London obviously being a very proud and, and impressive, uh, historically productive uh, uh, research type, uh, type center? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think in terms of things that I've brought back from my training in the U.S. to, to London, the little change we tried to make. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, a couple of my brain goes a bunch of different directions. The one thing that I really appreciated was a funny silver lining from uh, our, our life uh, with the virus, which was that during the, the worst of our COVID years, we actually were able to institute a difficult airway team in London. They actually, the hospital took some COVID funding from the government and was able to step up and pay for um, uh, like staff physicians to be in-house 24 hours a day and did some training, got us a special room, bought us equipment. I get all of a sudden I went, wow, this is sort of like what they would do in, in the U.S. They really are investing and putting a lot more into into patient care. I was pretty impressed by that actually. And um, so that was like just that, that was the first thing that came to my head was the, the fact that we, we actually developed a difficult airway team. Now, I mean, not to, to bad mouth or, uh, or complain, but with, you know, with COVID thankfully waning now, that funding has gone away and the team has gone off. So I kind of, I'm a little, I'm a little downtrodden with that in, in the moment, but I, so it, I understand why and we're having a lot fewer responses, but I thought that was, that was actually a positive change that it's, it showed the hospital kind of adapting and recognizing the patient care need and stepping up and, and supporting it the way that, um, uh, we would in the U.S. So when I was there, uh, a couple of our, my really favorite uh, trainees down there, the Arnitakis brothers, were, were publishing on the that first year of data that Elliot had gotten, where he realized that the residents sucked at prescribing DVT prophylaxis. And so what he did was he went to the, the EMR and said, can you please give me an anonymized list of all the residents and the number of times they appropriately prescribe, you know, Lovenox or whatever, whatever the drug was, um, for patients, because uh, they, because it was, you know, it was computer order entry. And so suddenly he has this anonymized list of every person and he published it, he emails it out. All you can see is your name, Rob Leeper, but the other 50 residents are on there too as blanks. And it shows you where you are on the list, how, whether you're at the top of the list or the bottom or the middle somewhere. And you can imagine that a surgical training program in particular, one like the one they had in Baltimore, these are type A people. These are competitive people. And suddenly after about the first month or two of that data being available, they clustered super tight near the very top. They were all 90 plus percent at uh, prescribing the, uh, the drug because nobody wanted to be last. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like the um, Lake Wobegon phenomenon. Everyone's above average. Nobody wants to be last. And so we borrowed that same strategy for our trauma simulations that my, my master's, um, sort of pieces when I was down there was I was doing um, interdisciplinary insights you trauma sims in the trauma bay and I would record them and score people and I brought that home with me so that when I do our trauma sims at home you know I've I have we have 25 residents in our program 
I assigned them into one of five trauma teams named after like famous surgeons from our, our, our past. And they stay in that team. They're all, all five years when one graduates and a new one joins. And so I score each of the teams for each of the sims we do, you know, between one and five, who won that sim. And it's anonymous. You don't know where the other teams ranked, but boy, the teams really compete. They really push one another. And I look at now over the last five years, as we're doing some more analysis of the data and the clustering of scores near the very top or the, the kind of the, if you look at sort of, I imagine a, um, I don't know, a target shooter shooting, shooting bullets at a, at a target. We're clustering very, very tight now around the bullseye um because people hate to be last and so that idea of just you know no one's being publicly shamed it's all anonymous no one even knows who else to score but you know where you rank and that really drives trainees and people to try to get that gold star or try to be number one uh so that's been a really neat sort of not a trick but a good motivational strategy i've borrowed from from elliot and from uh from the folks in baltimore yeah like it, it's kind of neat right because clearly you're the uh, background as a competitive athlete sort of plays into this as well too, right? Like, you know, there's, there's multiple things happening here that line up to make you the kind of the perfect person to institute something like this. Tell me a little bit about like, what is this, how does this get operationalized? So, so you're doing, so tell me about what the, these simulations look like and um, like, how do you sort of score people? Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, actually paint me a picture of what this actually looks like. Sure. Well, look, look is, a, is a, good, a good thing to start with. So, so the the five trauma teams, they're sort of, and this is a bit nerdy. It might put your players if you're afraid of, of nerd culture, but they're a bit like the houses at Hogwarts, right? I assign them all based on, on, on the names of our founders. And each house has its own vibe and its own team colors. Actually, I buy them all like um, uh, sets of like fig scrubs so that sort of the year. And then I replace them. So I, I buy new ones for each, each new person. So there's like a red team and a blue team, a green team and a, and a whatever team. So when they show up, the, the strong team looks good. They're all matching scrubs. And, um, and me and our fellow that, that year and often my brother, who I mentioned, uh, played at Queens and is now one of our nieces here. So he works, I mean, we, we do a lot. We collaborate a lot on simulation research. Uh, which is fun. We uh, we design up um, a sim scenario or two usually. We bring them in for two per day and when they come in for a session. And each scenario will have, you know, it's again, based on on the kind of the scripting that we did in, in Baltimore. It has, you know, predefined and timed events when they're going to arrest, when they're going to have sudden arterial bleeding. And then we have expected outcomes. So like how long will it take the students to recognize the positive fast? How long until they, until they request an MHP? So we have about eight or 10 usually um, rubric-based um, outcomes that we're looking for them to score. We record them and then in addition to doing like a real-time just hot debrief afterwards, we then go back and score the tapes. So I have to get med students to come and watch these videos with me over over our, our online archiving system. And they'll score those, those key features in the rubric. And then I can give actually a report card and I can, I can send you a copy if you want to look at one, but I have a very formalized report card that the residents get back and say, here, here are your scores. Here are the 10 things you're looking for. Here's what your times were. And it was the first place, second place, third place, fourth or fifth place time compared to the other internal controls of the other, the other four teams. And here's your overall rank. And here are like, you know, one or two, articles I might link to that's that sort of would support your learning around this sim or this particular aspect of, you know, how to manage, you know, a pancreatic injury or how to, you know, how to think your way through a difficult trauma airway. Um, so it's a really relatively robust and, and almost like, like formulaic and repetitive iterative process that I use to train our people up so that when they leave, even though London isn't you know, the busiest trauma mecca of a city, by the time they leave, they can think and talk and work their way through a trauma sim, a trauma, you know, a trauma recess, I think about as well as anybody. Um, and they compare, would compare very favorably to the folks that I, that I trained and worked with down in, um, in the U.S. Can you give, give me an example of like, so like, what's something that you've seen, for, not, not to, to give away your sims or to, to pull the lid off the box, so to speak, but it can you give me us an example of like what's something that you you saw a team do that you want, said okay you could have improved on this for example. Oh gosh, it's a big question. Um, what could they have improved on? A good example, yeah, sure. Um, just 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 so that people get a tangible idea, like when you're saying, uh, like when you're doing these sims, and you like what what are the, some of the things like uh, what scenarios would you have 
And what are the sort of the things that you're looking for that you want the teams to do? So I'll, I'll pick, um, and again, it's a little bit of a, um, a law and order style thing. I always take it from the headlines. I always try to find a case that's hot or spicy in the real world of our trauma system and then bring it to SIM. And I'll often capture images or especially the, um, the point of care ultrasound images from, from cases. So, you know, many years ago when I was first back, we had a really difficult case where um, uh, an unrecognized positive intra-abdominal fast and, inter and, and pericardial fast led to a big delay in patient care and actually patient death. Um, whether or not they would have survived it anyway is a question, but the patient did pass away. And so we captured those images on our system and said, wow, okay, this is, and they, they were, they were, they were tricky. They were, it was so much clot that it almost looked like liver in both views. Uh, and so it fooled the people involved. And so I captured the images, I brought them to the, to the SIM world and, uh, and our confederate in the SIM plays the role of a really confident provider who says, yep, yeah, you know, and, and, and when during the SIM, the beeps are going off, the mannequins is gasping and, and the, and the confederate puts the ultrasound probe on the, on the mannequin and shows the, the, the participants, the screen of the, of our ultrasound. And it's, it's, it's a exact, it's the, it's the loop from, from the actual case and says, Hey, look, so fast is negative. So I think we better move on. Must be, must be bleeding from the pelvis or the leg. Let's get, let's keep going. And five years ago, when they showed that clip, 100% of our trainees said, yes, sir, I agree. Let's move on. They all took the word of the senior clinician, um, you know, uh, for granted. And when I asked them in debrief, did anybody have any worries? Several of them were like, yeah, you know what? I, I'd raise their hands and I, I was, I thought it was positive. I was afraid to speak up. So five years on after doing all these sims and, and now after, you know, having been through it for their entire training program, I ran the exact same sim again with a whole new group that all graduated was five years later. And in this case, about three quarters of them spoke up right away, said, sorry, sir. No, that's positive. And whether that means they're just getting better at reading ultrasound, maybe, but I think they're learning better how to communicate and how to speak up to authority in crisis, how to actually let the give voice to concerns and, and rather than going to silence, find that, that appropriate sort of, I don't know, pool of shared meaning or, or to, to align to what I would call a shared mental model of the patient. And I'm seeing that so much more with our trainees, both in simulation and in the trauma bay, um, which, which is, I think, a huge win. I think this particular patient might survive if they rolled in today, whereas they didn't, you know, seven years ago now. Congratulations on such a, a fantastic effort. How often do you run the sims? So each team gets four sims per year. Um, like I said, we run them, uh, they do two per, per session. So each team comes for, for two separate sim days, usually a winter and a fall. Um, so four sims per year, 20 sims total per, per, per academic year. Um, so at the end of the, yeah, by the end of your five years, you've seen, you've seen 20 um, uh, high fidelity trauma sims to complement all the ones, all the real traumas you see in the trauma bay. And this is happening at the, the C-Star, right? That at your, in your, the, in the, the simulation facilities that you have at Western. That's right. We run, C-Star is an amazing group for us. I think every, I hope every center has their own um, kind of big simulation enterprise. Ours is C-Star. We run all of our trauma, um, that particular trauma center we run there in, in center. Um, although we also do a lot of insight shoot work, bringing CSAR brings the mannequin and brings people out to our trauma bays, our ICUs, our operating rooms. And we've done a lot of work that way too. But yeah, that one is, is run actually in the center. Well, again, congratulations on such a phenomenal amount of work. And uh, it, we're hoping Dr. Paul and I for sure, and I'm sure people listening to this across the country would love to bring similar type things uh, to our training programs around the country. So again, congratulations on such a, amazing work. I wanted to slightly shift uh, gears a little bit to talk about one other thing that you've done, because um, I found this just provocative and interesting. And you you actually looked at um, the impact of specialty training on trauma resuscitation. Curious what you found there and what the impetus was to do that work. Yeah, this was, I love this paper. Um, and uh, it's actually my favorite kind of paper, because sure, it's a provocative question to ask but um uh but what was interesting was we really we really wondered because in our center which i think is is somewhat um mirrored across canada but totally unique to the trauma world uh, especially compared to the americans would look at us like we have three heads 
we have shared duty. The trauma team leader for a given day is about equally as likely to be a non-surgeon as they are to be a surgeon. Somebody from emergency medicine or critical care versus somebody from trauma surgery. And that, that it, it creates a bunch of, of cool opportunities for natural observational um, you know, uh, studies. And so I was, I think I'm a senior resident. We looked at, said, let's just pull 10 years of data and let's try to figure out if there are differences in the ways that people are managed, be it from, from uh, surgeon versus non-surgeon trauma team leaders. And I mean, like you'd expect in trauma with big numbers and 10 years of data, you're not going to see a change in, um, in mortality, in, uh, in, you know, operative uh, resource utilization, blood product utilization, all those big ticket items that are very patient driven are pretty similar across the board. The places we started to see changes were certainly we had trends towards, you know, faster access to the operating room, shorter, shorter kind of recess times. But the place that was really significant for us was in the rate of missed injuries. And I don't know if um, this is something that uh, every trauma center kind of looks at as hard as they maybe could or should. But, um, you know, we demonstrated that uh, if you, you know, taking into account even the tertiary survey the following day, about 14% of all patients have at least one missed injury. Uh, which means they discover, gets discovered later in clinic, later on in the, in the in admission, a broken foot, a, you know, a sneaky, you know, uh, ligamentous injury that was missed. And um, interestingly, the folks who were resussed, managed by surgeons were significantly less likely to have missed injury than those that were managed by non-surgeons. And why would that be? Why, why would that be? I mean, we had a bunch of, it, it generated a bunch of good hypotheses. So the one thing I would say is, that the a higher fraction of our emergency medicine providers who are the non-surgical DDLs don't practice inpatient medicine. So they don't see the other side of patient care. And I think when I really think back in my heart about some of the conflicts that we've all had over our life with our colleagues in emergency medicine, there's, a, there's that fundamental misunderstanding of, well, you don't get what happens after they leave your department. You don't understand the longitudinal nature of their care and how this really plays out in the long term. And I do wonder if that is part of it. Like, like in their minds, is that that big of a deal that we missed the, the pinky toe fracture? It's not, it probably isn't. But when you actually go and account them all, um, the surgeon-led recesses were, were a lot more likely to be, um, I guess, detail-oriented and, and not prone to getting lampooned at M&M rounds two weeks later because they missed, uh, you know, uh, an injury. So that was, that was an interesting finding. And it just spoke to, I think, the different approaches and the different sort of paradigms within which um, surgeons and non-surgeons approach uh, trauma recess. That's such an interesting thing that you just said about M&Ms, right? Like, you know, they, uh, Richard Thaler, the behavioral economist talks about accountability bias, right? So when you, when you put yourself in your shoes standing on Friday morning or whatever it is that you have M&M rounds, then uh, you, you sort of maybe act a little differently sometimes in the moment because, you know, it really forces you to, 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 to be that maybe 1% extra diligent. Again, maybe again, uh, speaks to our nature as surgeons. I don't know. I'm not uh, sure if it's the right way to do it, Amir, but, but you're absolutely right. Dave Efron, one of my mentors in Baltimore always said, start with Tuesday morning and work backwards. That was the M&M mornings in Baltimore. Cause you knew that the John Cameron would be weighing in on like, yes or no, at the end of the M&M, whether, whether you, you were justifiable or not. And like, you just did not want to have Cameron say, you know, that was a terrible job. Like you didn't want to hear that. Right. So that may, may not be the best way, best way of practice, but it's, it's, it's a reality. And I think that particular study you talked about reflects that reality among surgeons and social trainees. Do you incorporate in your trauma team simulations, do you, you know, given this sort of findings and, and obviously the reality in Canada is that a lot of our traumas are going to be managed across the country by non-surgeons, uh, non-trauma surgeons for sure and non-surgeons for sure. Um, do you incorporate other uh, non-surgical disciplines like emergency medicine into your simulations as well? Yeah, I mean, um, to be sure, uh, a lot of our trauma fellows are, are non-surgeons. We, we, we've trained a bunch of really good EM docs who are now, you know, who work with us on, on the trauma side in, in London. So they, they come as fellows and, and work on the Sims. 
uh, our confederates uh, are usually playing the role of an EM position. And then we, depending on the scenario, we all, we like to bring in, um, you know, uh, special, special people to the sim. So I have, I had a pre-hospital focus in one of our sims for years ago, and I brought in two of our really, I think, talented paramedics uh, who, who came and joined us for the sim days. And they actually did the handover and they, they were part of the sim with the, um, with the trainees. I brought in ER charge nurses when we did, um, we practiced a, a multi-casualty sim where they had to manage more than one room at a time and had an ER charge nurse help them kind of divide resources and get that sorted out. So, so yeah, we try to bring in people who enrich and add to the, the experience. Cause really at the end of the day, what I, what I'm really passionate about, if, if I was, if I had the perfect world, all these sims would be, um, would be inside you. They all happen in the trauma bay where all that richness of multi-professional and professional uh, education would happen. But because we, we are still doing those up in, in the center, I try to bring people in selectively who would, who would be the most important extra element for that particular sim. We wanted to switch gears a little bit here and talk about your insight into starting practice. And obviously, you know where I'm, I'm going with this. For, for our listeners, we, we asked uh, Dr. Leeper to give us a, a talk when you had just sort of started, I think it was in your first couple of years back in London at the Canadian Surgery Forum. Uh, Morad Hamid and I had asked you to do it. And, and the title of the talk was something to the effect of things I wish I'd known when I, when I started or things I'm glad I knew when I started uh, as, a, as a junior or young staff surgeon. You hit on a number of topics and it was, Morad and I still talk about that, that lecture and, and that talk and uh, you know, really as one of our favorites of all time. I was wondering if you could start us off by sort of framing how you thought about you know, our question to you in that talk. Um, and, and how you put that together. Yeah. So that was, I mean, first of all, big picture, I, I, I really, uh, am, and blessed or cursed with loving the sound of my own voice. So you know, when given a mic and an opportunity to speak into one, I'm always happy to do it. And, and when I got that email from you and saying, Hey, Rob, can you talk a bit about just being a, a young uh, trauma surgeon and, and tips on starting practice? I went, Oh, this is, this is great. This is awesome. I'm going to, I have a, uh, I know I have a, I have a wealth of things to talk about and tips to share because because all I have to do is think about all the things I've done wrong, all the screw ups that I've had and stuff that I wished I'd done better or you know or or put it sort of off on, on a better foot, and that makes a, the list of things I can talk about really easy. Um, so that's kind of where I went from. I said, okay, what are the things that I've struggled with, the things that I've worried about, or the things that I've um, that I've seen done badly, and, and what's the what's the corollary of that? How do I how do I spin that out the other direction? And yeah, so it was, it was a ton of fun to just think about, um, to just go through that list and think of all the things that, um, that I could share. And yeah, you're right. It was, it was things like, man, I, I had the hardest time when I first came on finding um, a really good secretary, you know, and uh, I was so lucky to at least for a while be able to, to hire one who, had been really experienced and knew the system in and out and had been actually Neil Perry's uh, and Daryl Gray's secretary for many years. So that was huge. Gave me the time I needed to then find another great one who is, who is looking after my office now. Um, you know, I, um, I just, I, 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 I was so kind of um, uh, like silly small things like being destroyed on call and going, man, I wish there was a couch in my office to sleep on. Oh, right. That's why Dave had one in his office. I better get one, you know, to like, to some of the really, the, 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 the broad stroke stuff, like, like, you know, I, I, you know, even early in my practice and this happens ever the first year of practice notorious for this, you're going to have some bad outcomes, like a bad patient death or two. And I got to reflect on a few that I'd had and the difference between ones where it hit me and, and, and pinned me down or ones where it happened, but I knew we did all the right things. And it was way easier to kind of file away and learn from and move on. And what made those two deaths different? That was, so again, uh, I, I, it's, it's probably one of the best lines. And again, if you're, if you're fearful of nerd culture, um, plug your ears again, but it's probably one of the best lines that you ever get from Yoda when he says to Luke, um, the greatest teacher failure is 
uh, which is a line from The Last Jedi. And he's right. You know, if you're not focusing on your failures and finding ways to learn in the midst of all that suffering and sorrow and shame and anger, you're missing out. And so I just, that was an easy time to give. I just, I just went back and said, and made a big list of all the things I've done wrong. And, and it was, it was, a, the talk could have, could have gone on for hours, Chad. I had to, I had to really cut back on it. Well, you, you did a beautiful job and, you know, for our listeners, uh, which is be the majority of them who weren't at that talk, I, I, I hope you'll, you'll humor us here and, and, and take us through, you know, a few examples. And I, I'd love your thoughts on it because they, again, they were so insightful at the time. You, you talked about, um, for example, hiring a, a fantastic secretary or assistant. And that's true. It's, it's, uh, it's incredibly true. And it may be the single most important thing when you start. Now, I think usually you'd, you don't have that insight um, uh, or maybe even that ability to kind of select out in some, some Canadian healthcare systems who, who you want, but so critical. You, you know, you also talked a lot about the importance of the non-technical skill side of, of surgery. And you talked about it in, in a couple of different ways, um, whether that was critical care, sort of clinical content, hardcore knowledge, as well as it was sort of the, the social patient-focused, patient-family-centered side of things. I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on that today. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember that slide exactly. I, was, I actually put up, um, I put up uh, Lawrence Gilman's book on, um, on, on non-technical skills in, in Toronto, a book which I'm, I'm late on a chapter for, by the way. Sorry, Lawrence. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, to me, I think, uh, I think that's true. A lot of our trainees at the end of their fifth year, they tell me things like, well, doc, I just, I just gotta be able to pull the trigger. I gotta be a really good, I gotta put that stitch in. I gotta have downtown hands. if I'm going to be a good surgeon and you do, and there's no question. Like you, you, you know, you, you have to have really good technical skills. But if I ask myself the question, what, like what holds people back? um, in, in their practice or what makes them, you know, uh, struggle or, or be less than excellent as, you know, in practice, it's not going to be the technical stuff, you know, because kind of everyone can sort of put a stitch in or put a clip on or, or whatever. It's, it's the non-technical things. It's having like a three or four dimensional view of the trauma bay. It's managing your affect, your emotion around, around, uh, uh, an urgent case or a difficult person in the operating room, you know, how do you, how do you sort of um, manage that, that, that to me, like, if you're going to focus on something, if, you, if you're going to be, if you want to have one thing, like if you're making a character in a video game and you want to maximize one particular sort of uh, attribute, take non-technical skills all day, but make that a hundred, make max that category out because that's what really, I think at the end of the day differentiates um, you know, um, really high performers from yeah, yeah, the more average crew. So yeah, I think, I think that, and, and that's true, I think broadly in the sense of, of just being a, being a high performing person, but if you shrink it down and, and bring it back to just the trauma bay, you know, again, I have residents who think that to be a great trauma provider in the, in the acute phase they have to just be able to bang in a subclavian line in one second. They have to be able to like, you know, do a crike, uh, you know, with their eyes closed. And sure, those are important things too. Um, but it's, it's, it's like, it's the, it's actually more about being able to think and talk your way through a tough trauma. Cause, cause there's lots of people that, you know, um, there's this great line in um, when we were soldiers where this, 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 um, senior, um, you know, um, NCO who, um, who, uh, is played by, I forget who plays it. Some uh, really gritty actor. Um, uh, they say, you know, we never, the whole movie, the whole thing, you never carry a rifle. You're always just carrying a pistol. And he says, well, turns out if I ever need a rifle, there are a lot of them laying around, you know, from, from dead soldiers. Right. And, uh, and it's true in the real, like heat of the moment, there's always a lot of people around who can put in a line or put in a crike, what they need, what you need to be is their, is their leader. You need to be a person who can stand back and actually manage them and get those, those 10 cats to pull the dog's sled in the right direction. So I think, I, I think people focus too much on technical skills because it seems, it seems like that's what, that's what Top Gun would do. That's what Maverick would do. But really at the end of the day, it's more about being 
um, being uh, able to think and talk your way through problems and having that situational awareness more than just the ability to, to tie a great knot. Well, that, you know, that's a great analogy. It's, it's Sam Elliott. And that's one of the, you're right. You're right. The, the ad, yeah. Yeah. He's a Sergeant major. And uh, that's one of the best movies of all time. If you, if you ask me, so everyone should, should watch it. You know, and another thing that you talked about, <clears throat> which I thought was interesting and incredibly insightful again, was, the, the idea of saving every thank you card from a patient. What, what did you mean by that? So funny. I took I literally, I'm, I'm meeting a friend tonight who's just having a, a bit of a tough spot. He's a colleague and a friend. Uh, and uh, we're going to get some drinks tonight. And I just took a picture of a thank you card that I have posted on my wall and sent it to him and said, hey, like, here's a picture of a, of a common patient of ours who was saying thank you to you and Dr. So-and-so for all the hard work you did together. Um, and, you know, he, it, it, it happened, you know, his, his father's passed away and he's having a hard time. And like, you know, what a, like, you know, what other specialty, like my brother is an anesthetist. He gets no thank you cards, none. Right. Um, what a unique and lucky and so special place we occupy in our patients' lives that they think to, after going through a cancer diagnosis or a grievous injury, to take the time to write a thank you card and, and bring you a, a bottle of wine or a gift card or something like that's really special. And to do anything other than cherish those little mentos is crazy. You're, you're foolish to get rid of them because they, they meant a lot to that patient and boy, they can mean a lot to you as you sit in your office, looking at the, and mine, mine is pushed on a bulletin board behind my desk. And I sit there and look at an email about another, I don't know, grant I didn't get or another, you know, uh, order I didn't put in properly in, for day surgery. Uh, these, those thank you cards are a real um, reminder of, of what we do it for. And that the particular bulletin board that I have on my, you know, that I look at, I have a little, um, I, I, you know, I change, I, I pull the cards off every few years and replace them. But the, the heading across the top of the board is, uh, is something from, um, from Band of Brothers, and it's called "Why We Fight." That's, that's the, it's the name of their like the, the sixth episode of that, of that miniseries when they're when they're liberating um, camps in Eastern Europe. And this is why it's 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 the whole reason why you do it is to have good outcomes and have patients who who are who are grateful because you were there for them. And so that's I think that's people who you, 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 I I couldn't advise. If there's a lot of good advice in here. That one might be my strongest advice is to keep those thank you cards and remember remember why we fight. Yeah, I like that very much. That certainly helps on on tough days too. You, you talked about not ducking the hard clinical cases when you start. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's uh, that was important. I, it was my very like sort of last week in Baltimore. And I was going home and I was talking to my mentor Dave Efron and saying, "Hey, Dave, do you have advice for me and like you know things to to do in, in my first year back?" And I said, "You know, I think uh, I, I you know I think it might be smart for me to kind of you know maybe." not take on the worst cases my first year back, try to shell us all or refer those to Neil Perry for the first year. And he said, he says, stop, just stop. He goes, I didn't train you to go back and, and not do hard cases. He says, you know, when you're on, if you're the person who's on call and who decides to manage a case non-operatively because it's difficult, everyone will know, especially you, you know, um, he says, it's, it's, you know, uh, we are transparent, our, our motivations, our, you know, decisions and, um, and our, our kind of, I guess, uh, bravery is, is, is obvious to those around us and to your, and mostly to yourself. So if you start off ducking tough cases, if you start off narrowing your practice's scope to only things that you're quite certain will be successful, then you'll, you'll never get off that track. You'll become an, an I'm not comfortable surgeon. And, and Dave never, ever wanted to hear the phrase, I'm not comfortable. So he said, no, Rob, you're going to, you, I'm sorry to say, you're going to have to be tackling the toughest cases from the minute you, you put your feet, you put your boots in the ground. That's, that's the, that's the burden of, of our profession. And I said, geez, Dave, <laughs> you're right. Thanks for that. And he's right. He's totally right. You know, you, you just, you, um, it might be nice to think there's a, a way to have a slow, safe start, but there's not. So, so just accept that, acknowledge that. And when the tough cases show up, um, uh, do them and, and call for help for sure. But don't, uh, but yeah, definitely, 
definitely um, everyone will know, especially you. So, so take them on. Well, I like that sentiment. And then, you know, you're, you're, your little qualifier there, which is not so little in reality is, is ask for help. And I think, you know, that, that speaks to another one of your points, which is the importance of great partners and great mentors. You know, you obviously have the benefit of some tremendous experienced surgical talent around you when you start in London. Uh, in general, you have Ken Wesley and Daryl Gray and Neil Perry and some of the other names you've, you've mentioned for sure. Um, you know, we can't necessarily pick all of our partners, but we can certainly pick, I think, in the right times when we're being hired, the institutions that have that support system and have those wonderfully experienced, insightful, and helpful um, uh, faculty groups. What, what is your sense of, of that slide, thinking back to it in your particular scenario in London, for example? Well, I mean, I have the slide open in front of me now, so that's why I'm looking at it right now. It's funny how how much younger everyone looks just, you know, five, six years ago. But um, yeah, I think it's it's so important, Chad. You know, people will choose um, how they rank in CARMS. They'll choose where they choose for fellowship. They'll choose where they, they end up getting hired for a lot of reasons, location and remuneration and, you know, opportunity, you know, our time and whatever. But boy, pretty high on that list has to be the people you work with. Um, uh, they're going to make a huge difference. Who you work with and how you work together, right? What is your, what's your call structure like? What's your, how do you, how do you bill? How do you, you know, how do you share work? How do you share referrals? Those kinds of considerations matter so much. And it's not as much to me about the bottom line, like, you know, how much time like how much money will I make? That's not what's important at all. What matters is when you're having one of those difficult cases, um, when you need suddenly to have a partner pop in and, and do your OR list because you got called away for an emergency, you know, are they going to respond? Are they going to be there? Um, what will you enjoy spending time with them at, at Royal College exam day at, at meetings and, and so forth? It matters so, so much. And, uh, and it was a huge part of, of me wanting to come back and work in London was I just knew that I love these uh, girls and guys that I worked with so much. And uh, it, it makes a huge difference. You know, that notion of, of, of a positive culture and of, of a can-do attitude among your partners, boy, I, it's, it's, it's way easier said than done. But if you find it, hang on to that, that culture and those people because it really, really makes all the difference. I'd like to uh, maybe our second last question here, uh, split it into two parts. The, the first is that you, you did talk about, you know, a number of clinical trauma-related, resuscitation-related uh, topics um, in that talk. But I'm curious if there's anything that we missed that really strikes a chord with you beyond that um, from, from your, your lecture. And then the second part is, you know, it's been a few years since you gave that lecture now. And is there any insights that you would offer our, our, uh, our junior faculty listeners or maybe even fellows and, and senior trainees um, in, in terms of things you've learned since that, that, uh, that wonderful talk. Yeah. Nice. I'll, I'll interpret that as, um, as you know, what's the, the favorite slide we haven't talked about and what's, what's the slide you would add now um, for sure. So I think, um, I think my the favorite slide that we haven't addressed is uh, it was um, it was a revolutionary war era banner that says, give me uh, liberty, give me death. And I changed the word liberty to, to the word Cordis, which is a, a, that's a brand name, but it's the introducer sheath, the nine French introducer sheath that we use in London for our MTPs or massive damage protocol. It's a big, big, big central line. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think that's probably one of the more important things I can say to people. And there's a lot of folks who want to dredge up administrative data that shows that, that patients who receive central means access in the trauma they are less likely to survive. And of course that's a selection bias because they're sicker. Um, but I would say to people, you know, it's important to be able to pop in an IO when they first get there and, and getting peripheral IVs is important. But, you know, I, I think one of the things I see too much of is like five different IVs hanging one bag of blood each and none of it's actually going in and getting a, um, a single access point in resuscitation, a single large bore, you know, 
uh, energy sheath attached to a rapid transfusion device. That sounds simple enough, but actually you need to make that the centerpiece of your hesitation. That is, a, it's meant to be a crew served weapon where more than one person is responsible for checking and hanging blood. And if you can create that single access point with a crew serving your level one, your, your transfusion device, you will actually successfully get blood invasions at an incredibly faster rate than this kind of diffusion of responsibility of multiple sites. So I would say that that slide is one that I, I come back to quite a lot when I'm teaching both, you know, senior and very junior trainees about how to do um, trauma resus. Um, and then if I was going to add one more thing, you know, I, I have to say I'm going to be um, derivative and I'm going to do what I've done my whole career, which is to, to borrow from story mentors. I would just for reference back to what I heard Dr. Wall say on your podcast just a few weeks ago which was when you asked him what he would look back at and maybe modify about his career, his practice. I, I was a little bit, I don't know. I was, I, I almost pulled the car over on this new because He says that he would stop and smell the roses more, you know, and, um, and having been his trainee, that really, that really struck me because boy, Dr. Wall never stopped for anything when I was his trainee. And, uh, and I think that's probably true. I, I have a slide about, you know, taking good vacations and especially in the post-COVID year, I've taken a ton of good vacations and I probably should take more of them. I think spending, finding more time to stop and smell the roses with your family, with your kids, to coach your football teams. I would, if, if I was making this talk again, I guarantee there'd be a slide of me coaching my kids sports on it for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, Cause that really matters a lot to me. And I know what, and I, I know uh, I expect it would, it'll, it'll resonate with a lot of our listeners. And for those that don't yet, you know, aren't yet in practice or have kids or whatever else, um, you know, earmark that down the road. That's a really important concept. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.